The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Accelerating Progress in the Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease, How Can We Achieve Timely and Accurate Neuropathological Diagnosis and Precision Management of Mild Cognitive Impairment in Early Alzheimer's Disease, featuring Dr. Liana G. Apostolova from the Indiana University School of Medicine and Indiana Alzheimer's Disease Center in Indianapolis, Dr. Nicholas J. Ashton from the University of Gothenburg and Salgrenska University Hospital in Millendal, Sweden, Dr. Sharon Cohen from the Toronto Memory Program in Toronto, and Dr. Michelle M. Milkey from Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JYU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program, CME program, Accelerating Progress in the Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease. The faculty tonight, I am joined by Nicholas Ashton from University of Gothenburg, Sharon Cohen from the Toronto Memory Clinic, and Michelle Milkey from Mayo Clinic, and I'm Liana Apostolova from Indiana University. It's an international faculty group. All right, we're ready for our first speaker. This is Dr. Michelle Milkey, Professor of Epidemiology and Professor of Neurology uh, at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Well, uh, thank you, Liana. Uh, It's nice to see everybody here today, and and also hello to those that are attending virtually. Um, So to start out, I'm going to focus on the benefits um, and needs for early detection, as well as some of the barriers and gaps that are faced. First, uh, let's start out with a little bit of background, as we always need to do. So as, as you all know, dementia is one of the biggest global health crises of the 21st century. There are currently 55 million people worldwide living with dementia at a cost of um, 1.3 trillion U.S. dollars. This number is set to grow to 139 million by 2050 because of the aging population across the globe, with the biggest increases in low- and um, middle-income countries. Alzheimer's disease is thought to be the most common cause of dementia, and accounts for about 60 to 70% of all global dementia cases. Next, we'll, talk, we'll touch base on the assessment and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, Alzheimer's disease is a continuous progressive disease that occurs over three stages. The preclinical or asymptomatic stage is a long stage in which significant clinical symptoms are not present, but brain changes begin to occur. These include amyloid beta plaques, neurofibrillary tangles, and neural changes that can contribute to uh, neurodegeneration. The next stage, mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, is a prodromal stage between being cognitively unimpaired and dementia. At this stage, there starts to be symptoms of memory or other thinking problems that are greater than normal for a person's age and education. However, the symptoms do not yet interfere with this person's independence. Some people with MCI will go on to progress to Alzheimer's disease, some with MCI may progress on to other dementias, and some may not progress at all. Alzheimer's disease dementia is the final stage of the disease in which the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, including memory loss, word-finding difficulties, and other thinking problems, are significant enough to impair the person's ability to function independently. Now we're gonna, I'm going to introduce to you a, a patient and a case series, and we'll continue the introduction and add more information um, throughout my talk as well as throughout Dr. Ashton's and uh, Cohen's talks. Uh, 
So our patient, Harold, is a 66-year-old retired man who presents at an annual wellness visit. He was previously a special education teacher um, and later an IT specialist. At the wellness visit, he reports a two-year history of gradual onset and progression of decline in recent memory. These include repeating himself, forgetting details of recent events, misplacing items, and mild difficulties with learning new information. However, his remote memory remains intact. He does also have some mild difficulties with sense of direction in unfamiliar environments, uh, word-finding difficulties, and difficulties multitasking. He has reported recent mild situational anxiety and depressive symptoms when he thinks about some of these cognitive problems. He also reports mild to moderate insomnia. His instrumental activities of daily living are only mildly impaired, um, such that he is not as efficient in completing tasks, has some difficulties calculating tips, and needs occasional reminders to take his medications. He does live a relatively healthy lifestyle, exercises three times a week, and has a healthy diet. His primary care physician administered the MINICOG, and he scored three out of five, uh, with two points lost for recall. Given this history presentation and, presentation and performance on the, the MINICOG, he was referred to a specialist for uh, further care. So uh, mild cognitive impairment is a heterogeneous disease that can, um, or uh, disorder that can contribute or can be caused by multiple etiologies. When we think of Alzheimer's disease, we often think of the first symptoms as being uh, memory impairment or, or problems with memory. But patients with Alzheimer's disease can also present with other problems in other cognitive domains, such as executive function, or present with behavioral changes, such as depression, anxiety, or apathy. There are four stages to the diagnostic process of Alzheimer's disease, and these are available in a practice aid that, is, uh, that you can go ahead and download. Um, much more information in that aid, but just briefly, um, Typically in step one, detection, um, this is most often going to occur at primary care physicians, um, both in the U.S. And, and I believe in other countries as well. And as I just discussed, typically occurs with uh, patient and family history, as well as brief cognitive exams. The assessment and differentiation aspect of it, or step two, does occur somewhat at primary care, but also um, starts to evolve as uh, patients are referred to specialists. And this can include neurological and physiological exams, blood tests to rule out other causes of dementia, um, more uh, thorough cognitive and functional assessments, and then possibly a, a, a MRI. Step three is diagnosis in terms of trying to understand the underlying etiology of the cognitive impairment, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or um, vascular dementia, for example. And in this case, access to biomarkers is really important. And then, of course, the fourth step, um, depending on what the diagnosis is, will lead to potential avenues for treatment. So let's get back to uh, Harold again. He was referred to a specialist and first underwent the MOCA. He scored 22 out of 30 on the MOCA with points lost for trails, a copy of the cube, clock, serial sevens, orientation, and also three points lost on recall. He had a thorough neuropsychological assessment in which it was found that his premorbid intelligence was in the superior range. 
On the MMSE, he scored 26 out of 30. And on the CDR, he had a global score of 0.5 and a sum of boxes of 2.5. He performed average to, in the average to impaired range on attention, working memory, and visual spatial function. However, it was found that he performed in the impair range on category verbal fluency as well as verbal memory. Um, it was found that he did not have significant depression or anxiety despite the, pri the prior report of some anxiety symptoms. His general physical examination and neurological examination were unremarkable, with the exception that he did have a myocardial infarction about 15 years ago. However, laboratory assessments for reversible causes of cognitive impairment were all found to be normal. So it, it was next decided to have an MRI of the brain. And um, the MRI showed mild to moderate bilateral atrophy in the parietal, frontal, and hippocampal regions. In addition, there was mild to moderate small vessel ischemic disease and a large cortical infarction. So given the evidence of memory impairment, um, but also the evidence of cerebrovascular disease, the neurologist decided to order amyloid biomarker testing. Here's a list of potentially useful diagnostic biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. In terms of amyloid biomarker testing, the most common, again, depending on um, the country that you live in or region, uh, is typically CSF amyloid beta 42 to 40 ratio or the CSF p-tau ratio. Amyloid PET uh, is a potential option in the U.S. And, and possibly for some other countries as well. There are some promising blood-based biomarkers that are emerging, and Dr. Ashton will talk about that in, in the next talk. So next I'm going to briefly talk about some gaps in the detection and diagnosis of MCI and dementia. Although several professional societies, foundations, um, and many government entities recommend the early detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, such as the MCI stage, few patients diagnosed with MCI, few patients are diagnosed with MCI outside of research settings. Even at later stages, many patients with dementia go undetected. In the United States, more than 40% of mild dementia patients go undetected by primary care physicians. And 55% of Americans suffering from Alzheimer's disease are never told they have the disease. Worldwide, diagnosis rates are around 40% in high-income countries and as low as 10% in low- and middle-income countries. Now, although physicians report that brief cognitive assessments are thought to be or are beneficial, just one in seven elderly adults receive regular assessments. Validated biomarkers such as amyloid PET scans or CSF amyloid are not routinely used in the diagnosis of MCI or Alzheimer's disease, even though they have been proven to change the management of patients 60% of the time. So what are some of the causes of these gaps and some of the barriers that contribute to the gaps? Well, barriers tend to fall into two categories, clinical barriers and patient-oriented barriers. Clinical barriers include insufficient referrals, um, such as to specialists, and long wait lists in order to um, obtain appointments with specialists. Comorbidities and co-occurring disorders and dementias that can make early detection and diagnosis very challenging. Time constraints during office visits, particularly for primary care physicians. 
lack of access to specialized diagnostic tests, and sometimes lack of knowledge in making a diagnosis. System barriers, and also importantly, disbelief in early detection. So a survey that was conducted last year globally reported that 33% of physicians expressed disbelief in the value of early detection and diagnosis. In addition to clinical, there are also patient-related barriers. This may include lack of awareness on the behalf of the patient or also the community, and also fear and stigmas. 46% of patients express fears of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and the perceived stigma surrounding the diagnosis. They particularly fear losing their independence and driving abilities. There are a lot of barriers that occur at the primary care level. Now, these barriers, again, will depend on the country that you live in, the health system that you work on, and the health insurances that you might have to deal with. So, for example, uh, um, uh, one coverage barrier is the last lack of coverage for cost of cognitive tests or um, lack or, or not enough coverage for the time that it's spent, primary care providers need to spend in order to diagnose somebody with a complex disease or, or with cognitive impairment. Capacity is also a problem, uh, particularly workflow considerations that might limit access. Um, and the, the, again, the complexity of some of these cases that come in when primary care physicians may only uh, be allotted 15 minutes for an individual patient, and it's, it's not possible to go through the diagnostic process in that time. Capabilities are also another barrier. Um, and particularly the limited familiarity of primary care physicians with the differential diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. For example, 70% of respondents to a large physician survey in Europe feel that primary care physicians have trouble detecting early Alzheimer's disease. There are also many obstacles to biomarker testing. And again, this will depend on the country and health system that you work with. In the United States, PET scans are only uncovered for those that are enrolled in the IDEAS study or other potential research studies. CSF biomarkers themselves are not approved in the United States, but CSF amyloid beta-42 is covered by insurance. Now, I, I think this is a little bit different for some European countries where CSF amyloid beta is often used for diagnostic purposes and are automatically covered. Um, Precivity AD uh, was the first blood-based biomarker to receive accelerated FDA approval in the U.S. Um, however, it's not covered by insurance and not widely available in the United States. As Dr. Ashton will talk about in a little bit, um, there are some other blood markers that are available in other countries and are used clinically. There are also capacity barriers, um, particularly with regards to PET and tracer manufacturing, uh, especially with lack of access in rural areas and uh, many smaller cities. Capabilities are also uh, barriers. So in the U.S., lumbar puncture has become relatively uncommon, and this is due to both patient and, and sometimes primary care physician resistance and fear of complications and procedures. And many clinical practices are not set up and trained. Those that are mostly done in neurology clinics, but have small volumes. So I've talked a lot about um, the barriers and gaps, 
But um, let's get to the point of why it is so important to diagnose uh, individuals as early as possible. So we, we know that the uh, pathology of Alzheimer's disease begins decades before the onset of cognitive symptoms, most often 20, even 25 years um, before clinical symptoms begin. The early identification of patients will increase the likelihood that they'll benefit from disease-modifying therapies. And the earliest um, one can start on the treatment, the less likely there is to have more uh, neurodegenerative diseases and neural changes which are, are extremely difficult uh, to reverse. But a key question that's often asked is how early is necessary? Can this be done in the MCI phase or does it need to be done in the pre-symptomatic phase before the onset of clinical symptoms? And, and that's certainly something that, that is still being investigated. The value of early detection and diagnosis uh, is immense. It can you know, certainly uh, or benefit patients and their care providers. It allows time to educate and counsel patients and their families, and uh, earlier on allows patients to be involved in their medical decision-making and long-term care planning. Uh, diagnosing earlier allows the optimization for other medical conditions that um, might affect cognition down the road, as well as the, an opportunity to change lifestyle behaviors and slow down cognitive decline. It also increases the eligibility to participate in clinical trials for emerging disease-modifying therapies. And there is evidence, as mentioned, that disease-modifying therapies may be more effective earlier in the disease course. Now, as we're thinking about going earlier and earlier, um, particularly in asymptomatic patients, there is also a need to balance the benefit of routine screening of asymptomatic patients with potential costs um, and, and downsides of the screening and early diagnosis. Um, so this can, can, there are a lot of ethical issues and disclosure issues that need to be discussed. Um, for example, in the United States, one fear is that if you're diagnosed asymptomatically with Alzheimer's disease pathology, will that, if that goes in the medical record, will that affect long-term care? Um, you may not go on to develop Alzheimer's disease before you pass away. So what implications could those have? There are also disclosure aspects as well. Um, there are, are several groups right now around the world um, that are, are currently working on guidelines for both ethical issues as well as disclosure. Um, even uh, one of the, the biggest factors that come back or responses in terms of why physicians don't think there's a need to diagnose early is that disease-modifying therapies aren't available or are just becoming available and they're not sure about them. However, um, lifestyle changes can also importantly make a difference even in patients with mild cognitive impairment. This can include exercise, addressing vascular risk factors, diet, and a variety of other interventions. Uh, three such lifestyle behavioral interventions are listed here. So, for example, one study of people with subjective cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment found that lifestyle interventions improved cognition and reduced the risk of progression to Alzheimer's disease among community-dwelling elders. In uh, participants with a family history of dementia, having three or more positive lifestyle behaviors resulted in a 35% decreased risk in dementia as compared to those individuals that had two or less uh, positive behaviors. And lastly, in the general population, 
uh, meta-analysis by the Lancet Commission on Dementia found positive lifestyle interventions could reduce the estimated dementia prevalence by 35 to 40%. So uh, given these benefits, what are some strategies that might be able to be used to improve the early Alzheimer's disease rates? So again, these are focused on both clinical strategies and patient and community strategies. Clinically, it will be important to implement cognitive screening at earlier ages. The specific age may depend on the population, such that lower educated populations, you may want to screen e even a little bit earlier. Um, Blood-based biomarkers are going to be extremely beneficial um, in terms of feasibility and access to the general population. Um, again, Dr. Ashton will talk more about that in a few minutes. There, there's really an important need to improve the referral systems between primary and specialist care, and education of primary care physicians is, are essential. Um, this includes both the physicians as well as the nursing and medical team that are going to end up treating uh, and helping many of these patients. On the patient and community side, there's a need to improve understanding and awareness of the community uh, about Alzheimer's disease and also to develop more aging in place strategies that can reduce stigma. So uh, now our, our next speaker will be Dr. Nicholas Ashton. So I want to talk about biomarkers today and following on from Michelle's talk and I uh, want to talk mainly about blood-based biomarkers, but uh, we'll start from the basics, see how we get on. So what do we want our biomarkers to do in practical terms, in simplistic terms? First of all, at the baseline level, we want them to help us give a good diagnosis of the cognitive impairment that someone may come into a memory clinic. Um, and of course, in the future, this is not available in Europe, but of course in the, in the US, it's a potential uh, possibility is selecting these cases for th uh, therapeutic intervention. Of course, we, in the context of therapeutic intervention, we want our biomarkers to monitor drug effects. How is someone changing uh, in the disease course? How are they progressing? And we want our biomarkers to be able to reflect that. And of course, as me as a researcher, we can use these tools in, in clinical research to stratify and give a good underlying pathology of what's going on so we can stratify better and we can come up with new uh, mechanistic targets for us uh, as researchers. So this is a curve you'll all be very well familiar with, uh, but it is backed up by a lot of data now um, and it shows us that we have amyloid pathology increasing very, very early in the disease course, plateauing when we start to get overt symptoms, and this can be uh, tracked by amyloid PET imaging, CSF AB to 4240, which we've discussed briefly already, and there's also an approved blood AB to 4240 in the US, C2N diagnostics. Later in the disease course, we have tau pathology, and that's characterized well by tau PET. Phosphorylated tau and CSF is also very well used, and we have different types of epitopes uh, to do this. And uh, we have blood, phosphatal, 181, 217, 231, which we'll talk about as well. I think this green line here should actually be two different lines because we know from our research studies now that phosphorylated tau in fluid starts to accumulate or increase uh, much earlier than tau PET. And, it, and in the early stages of the disease, it starts to track amyloid pathology and has a differential association with tau PET later on in the disease course. Then moving on to symptoms, we are, you're developing uh, mild cognitive impairment or, or dementia. We have biomarkers for neuronal death and neurofilament light and synaptic loss uh, in neurogranin. And, these, and the imaging 
space can be characterized by structural MRI and uh, glucose metabolism PET. So what's the role of an MRI in this process? Well, it's really to identify areas of atrophy which uh, would support a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So medial temporal lobe atrophy, uh, shrinkage of the general brain, atrophy in the hippocampus. But it's also used to rule out very obvious um, uh, indications of what might be causing co cognitive decline. So in the case of Harold we saw earlier, he had a, a cortical infarct and we want to know whether that could be a potential cause of the cognitive decline. But tracking our um, molecular pathology in the brain, because as we spoke, we have an amyloid and tau PET, our CSF biomarkers and the plasma 4240, which is approved. I think we all very well know their pros, uh, particularly for plasma being non-invasive and widely accessible. And the cons for, for PET would be uh, you are exposed to radiation and lumbar puncture does uh, seem to uh, have a negative uh, connotation in, in many scenarios. But the, the main con is that they're not widely available. PET scans you cannot get everywhere, as we know. CSF, you still need to go and see a specialist and uh, invite the patient to come to a specialist clinic where you can imagine a blood test would be something you could be taken in a local clinic and sent to a, a, a third lab. So amyloid and tau PET, I'm not an imager, but I think this, these are quite clear. Even I can interpret these. That's a global cortical amyloid uh, deposition or uptake by this tracer. Uh, occurs, and it also occurs in cognitively unimpaired, as we showed from these jack curves earlier. And there's little change as you progress to Alzheimer's disease dementia. And this is different for tau pets, where you can see there's not so much deposition in the cognitively unimpaired stage, even if they're amyloid positive, but has regional and uh, meaningful cognitive information uh, at, the, at the dementia stage, where the deposition of tau is more informative on, on the symptomatic relationship of the patient. So how do biomarkers affect our use in, in clinical management? And this is the IDEA study, um, as we've already previously mentioned, over 11,000 individuals. And the main home, two main take-home messages from this study, first of all, showed that clinically diagnosed MCI and AD patients didn't have amyloid, a large percentage of amyloid positive, what we'd expect, only 50% of MCI and 70% uh, of dementia patients. But with the use of uh, amyloid PET scan, the treatment plan was shown to be shown in over 60% of patients with MCI and 63% of patients with AD. So the biomarker was really uh, changing the management plan and the, the thought process of a clinician. So moving on to CSF and blood, we want to, uh, or mainly blood, we want to reflect these biomarkers that the ideas study have, but also in fluid. And these are the main biomarkers that we would use in clinical chemistry in, in Sweden. And these are extremely well validated. So this is a, a great uh, resource here, this ALS biomarker database, where you can see all the published studies on CSF phosphatau, total tau, and AB to 42, and also in the ratio of 40, which has an extremely important uh, normalizer for uh, APP processing in individuals. So it, this biomarker works better as a ratio with 40. And you can see that they are very well validated and um, they are widely used in Europe in clinical chemistry and diagnostic purposes. More importantly, we have uh, 
certified reference materials for these assays. And this means that you have an immunoassay for AB to 42. You have a certified reference material when you can actually normalize your uh, biomarker to a global standard. So you can then start using cutoffs across interlabs, which is extremely important when trying to uh, find out globally uh, what, what uh, is going on in, in different cases of dementia in different populations. And we also have fully automated versions of these CSF assays, so minimal uh, involvement with lab technicians where a, a, a sample can be taken straight from the doctor's office and then put straight into automated uh, platform. And these are also available for us to use. And the concordance between CSF and PET biomarkers is, is extremely good. So two large studies, uh, this has been validated widely now by uh, a, num a number of other studies, that these fluid biomarkers are very reflective of what we see by amyloid PET. Not 100% uh, accurate, they're around about 90, and I think that's right, because I think there's a differential change between CSF and amyloid plaque deposition. That's for another, another session, I think, but uh, they are extremely concordant. So when to use CSF biomarkers in the clinic? Now, I think to summarize this, me personally, although I'm not a clinician, if you have a, 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 a suspicion that there's Alzheimer's disease at play here, we should use them in all cases, if it's possible, to have the this, this CSF test. So subjective cognitive decline, possible AD dementia, uh, even behavioral symptoms. We have biomarkers that can maybe track uh, uh, neurodegeneration or even alpha-synuclein pathology now with this RT-quick. So we're going to go back to Harold. Uh, we saw his uh, MRI and we've seen his uh, history. And now we're going to look at his biomarker testing. And in, and in Sweden, this would be done, on, on I think, most places in Europe, maybe even the, the States, that a CSF biomarker panel would be the preferred choice. And I haven't put the actual picogram per mil value here because I think it's not very informative because different tests have different cutoff values. But what we can deduce from this is that AB to 4240 was low. So uh, possibly reflecting plaque pathology in the brain and total tau and fossil tau are high. In a research setting, he, or if he was part of the idea study, he might have had an amyloid PET. And we can see that there is uh, overt near cortical binding here uh, by this scan. So moving on to blood biomarkers. Of course, I think it's all very, very clear that the blood biomarker is widely accessible for most people and easy to obtain. Uh, I think that's easy to understand. Uh, and we are now getting to the point where we have very, very good biomarkers that can encompass this ATN criteria, amyloid tau and neurodegeneration. And we're going to talk about them uh, in a bit more detail. I think it's really important from a biochemical point of view to point out why do we suddenly now have these blood biomarkers. We've known about phosphorylated tau for 20 years in CSF. Uh, and now after 20 years of research doing blood biomarkers, we've come up with phosphatau in the blood. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, but outside of the fact that our technology has vastly improved and our research cohorts have vastly improved, where we have definitive diagnosis, a biological diagnosis of the disease, we now understand how tau exists in the blood. And this is extremely important for us to develop immunoassays. But the N-terminal part of the tau protein is the part that really does leak into the blood or fragments into the blood. And in the CSF, it looks a bit different. And in the blood, it, it, the, the full protein exists in different fragments. So I hope everyone online can see this, that we have different phosphor tau epitopes uh, in blood, 181, 217, 231, that uh, we are widely uh, looked at in, in research. 
and there are a few of these assays now that are being looked at by the FDA for approval uh, for uh, a diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's disease. Total tau at the moment, we only really have an assay in, in CSF that works. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit more. And then we have some other information. We have amyloid, uh, which we'll talk about first. Neurofilament light, which is a global marker of neurodegeneration. And then GFAP, which in the brain is a measure of astrogliosis. In the blood, I don't think we're really quite sure, but it seems to work very, very well. And we'll talk about that as well. So it's very mean for me to say, because Kai is not here to defend himself, but him and uh, Henrik Zetterberg published a paper maybe 15 years ago saying that plasma A-beta-4240 is not a biomarker for Alzheimer's disease. And of course, at the time, they were completely correct. Uh, but this started to change uh, in 2016. Before that, we had immunoassays that were not sensitive enough. Some people were reporting that it was increased in blood. Some people reporting it was decreased, most saying there was no change. Um, but now we have uh, immunoassays for AB to 4240, which show uh, a quite a small decrease in the AB to 4240 in blood, just like we see in CSF, reflecting retention of amyloid in the plaques in the brain. At the same time, we were uh, groups were developing immunoassay, uh, sorry, uh, mass spectrometry methods for uh, AB to 4240, and the advantage of this, although it's a bit more of a complex uh, technique, is that you have uh, absolute uh, confidence that you're measuring the 1 to 40 and the 1 to 42 peptides in the blood and not X to 42, X to 40, like you would be in an immunoassay. And these are different examples of how these biomarkers are showing quite clear changes in people with amyloid positivity versus amyloid neg uh, neg negativity. And now this is the early and the basis of the approved test uh, in, 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 uh, in the US. Um, where we see that there is a, a clear reduction in amyloid PET-positive individuals. Um, the same assay shows a much bigger reduction in CSF, around about 50% it changes between studies. And you only see a 10% reduction in AB to 4240 in the blood. Um, and this is very reproducible and it has very high accuracy. The disadvantage of this is that, of course, if you have variability in your assay, close to 10%, then... Uh, ad hoc sampling using this method might not turn out to work so well, but we don't have the data for that yet. So but it's a biomarker, the biomarker specificity that the fold change is much smaller. Very quick comment on plasma total tau. I don't need to really uh, describe these slides. You can see that it doesn't work in blood in its current format. Slightly increased in Alzheimer's disease, uh, but you see that there's massive overlap and there's no real correlation with total tau and CSF. So at this current time, we don't really have a biomarker to reflect total tau. But we do have biomarkers for phosphorylated tau, a biomarker that's highly specific for Alzheimer's disease. And Michelle was one of the first to, to publish uh, a paper using these assays, uh, showing that in Alzheimer's disease uh, patients with amyloid pathology, phosphorylated tau was increased um, and was also increased at the cognitively unimpaired stage. And this has been uh, widely validated in many large cohorts now, uh, looking at uh, different stages or different uh, dementia diagnosis. On the, right on the left hand side here, you can see that uh, Alzheimer's disease specifically increases in phosphorylated tau, but is low in all other uh, neurogenitive disorders if there's no amyloid pathology. It's a reoccurring theme that we'll try and uh, emphasize that phosphatau in biofluid is very reactive to amyloid pathology. 
And here on the right-hand side, this is a, a different uh, version of the assay developed in Gothenburg University, showing high increases in amyloid-positive AD, but low in uh, other neurogenerative disorders. 231 shows a very similar pattern, increases across the Alzheimer's disease continuum, uh, is validated by neuropathology cohorts. It's a different variant of the same biomarker showing the same thing. And phosphatal 217 is another variation of the same biomarker, uh, has very high accuracies. Again, it's specific for Alzheimer's disease pathology and uh, increases in the cognitively unimpaired stage. I will show some data to show that, that, that later that there's no real difference between these epitopes, but looks like the phosphatal 217 has a larger fold change when you're looking at people without dementia, uh, without Alzheimer's disease, and those with Alzheimer's disease. So as a clinical test, it might be clearer, clearer to interpret. These uh, biomarkers have all been uh, validated by neuropathological confirmation, which is a major step. Uh, it's our gold standard still, neuropath, and they all uh, are very highly related to tangle count and uh, um, BRAC staging at neuropathology, and all, all three of these biomarkers have been validated in that way. And this is a, a point that I'm just going to come back to here, is that the difference between these phosphatal epitopes. So this is a study uh, done by Thiessen in uh, released last year, Lancet Neurology, and we can see that the area under the curves or the accuracy of these biomarkers to separate people that are amyloid positive or tau positive from the negative counterparts are almost identical. But you can see here in the, in the red graphs here that the range and the fold changes of 217 seems to be slightly larger for, for that biomarker versus 181. And this is the same uh, assay on the same platform. It's just a different uh, phosphoepitope. Now, this is not a very exciting slide by the start, but I think it's really, really exciting because this is real-world data. These are individuals that uh, have been recruited from a primary care... Uh, into in, sorry, have been re uh, referred from primary care to a specialist centre, uh, and so there is no um, exclusion criteria in these individuals, like in research cohorts. And what we're looking at here is different phosphatal epitopes measured on different platforms, um, which is... And a question in our field is, which is the best biomarker and which is the best platform? And if you look here in the plasma biomarkers, closer to the right-hand side, we have four of many different tested that have extremely good accuracy to determine those that have Alzheimer's disease pathology in the context of a clinical evaluation. And if you look on the right-hand side, these are the same biomarkers in CSF and the ones that are the best in, pl in plasma. There's no real difference between them and the CSF. So we have really good plasma biomarkers in a clinical setting to say is there Alzheimer's disease pathology at play here that's causing cognitive decline. This is more evidence really here to say that the phosphoepitopes also track with tau pathology. They increase extremely early with amyloid pathology but there seems to be a differential relationship later in the disease when tau becomes to uh, de develop as well. But trying to deduce the amount between amyloid and tau is quite difficult but it seems to be there as a, as a separate uh, relationships. Moving away from clinical Alzheimer's disease and preclinical disorders, as I've, as I've discussed already, phosphatau increases very, very early. So on the left-hand side, individuals who are BRAC0, so no detectable tau pathology by PET, but they are amyloid positive, and you can see that those individuals are elevated. And also in familial Alzheimer's disease, we know that they are going to get Alzheimer's disease dementia. And in even those that have no symptoms, the phospho epitopes are increasing in the blood. 
Now, switching gears to neurofilament light, and neurofilament was really the biomarker that led the way in this blood biomarker revolution. It was the first one really to show that it showed uh, good correlations in CSF, so we could actually measure a, a CNS-specific signal in blood. This is the correlation here between CSF and blood. It doesn't always look like that. This is the best-case scenario, for sure. Uh, but it, there, there is definitely still a strong correlation. And the accuracies to determine AD dementia and controls was quite good. So how does this work in primary care? These are uh, up to 4,000 individuals done in two different centres, multiple different types of uh, biomarker-confirmed diagnosis. And what we can see here is that neurofilament light is ubiquitously increased across all these different uh, disorders. And you'll notice here that AD dementia is actually modestly increased compared to other disorders. So it's not a diagnostic marker for AD. Maybe it's a neurodegeneration intensity biomarker. few things that I want to point out here as a primary care tool for neurofilament light. First thing is in... Uh, atypical Parkinsonian disorders. If you have a poor, pure Parkinson's disease syndrome, if you have uh, compare that to those the atypical type like PSP, neurofilament light is really increased, and this is validated in both cohorts as you can see. Second one is in, in Down syndrome, that if you Down syndrome dementia, uh, neurofilament light is really increased, and this is a really useful tool uh, in this population where. Uh, intellectual or cognitive performance is not easy to determine uh, and so a, a, an independent biological marker of this is, is really, really useful. And second of all, that in those that are in the cognitive impairment spectrum of dementia, FTD or vascular dementia, neurofilament light seems to be a bit higher than typical AD. So we saw a biomarker-confirmed AD case uh, with very, very high levels of neurofilament light we might want to think that there's a vascular component or even an FTLD component to this diagnosis. Last thing I want to uh, say about neurofilament light is that it's very useful in early onset dementias. People that progress with, uh, uh, with depression or primary psychiatric disorders, which is, early, is often an early uh, onset indication, if it's of a neurogenitive disorder, neurofilament light will be increased, and it's a useful biomarker in this very, very early setting, in people that are younger, uh, around about 55, 60 years of age. Now, this is a difficult biomarker, GFAP. It's, for some reason, uh, we have now started to measure this, and it's working very, very well, but we've all have known about GFAP for many years as a reactive astro uh, astrocyte marker in the brain. We can measure it quite easily in the blood with some uh, Samoa technologies, and it reacts very, very early to amyloidosis. You can see here in individuals with no impairment but are amyloid positive, uh, GFAP is increased. Now, we don't really know why that is. Is that because of, of astrocytosis? Is it secondary to uh, amyloid pathology? Um, that we don't not quite clear, but it's a very useful biomarker. And one of the advantages of it is that everyone is using the same type of assay, and these results are extremely reproducible from lab to lab. So we have biomarkers that are starting to encompass this ATN and then maybe G uh, with GFAP. And they are there to guide the clinical management. They shouldn't replace the clinical uh, determination of what you get from a neuropsychological test. But they're there to say, is there Alzheimer's disease type pathology at play uh, which can guide us? Just like in the IDEA study where the amyloid PET guided the clinician in their management there.
So I want to leave with this slide where this is, this is my take, and this is an adaptation from Anton Luzzi's paper, which looked at tau pet in, in primary care. And I think from the biomarker study that I showed you in a, a real-world scenario, if you choose the right test, and that is very, very important, the right type of phosphorylated tau test, and someone comes with uh, a suspected Alzheimer's disease, a positive phosphorylated tau test is extremely supportive of underlying AD pathology. What that positivity means at the moment, we don't know, and that's what we need to work on. What are the cutoffs? What's positive? What's negative? If that comes back negative, but you combine it with a positive neurofilament light test, for me, this is quite supportive of a different uh, neurodegenerative disorder underlying the cognitive complaints. And what this does is it rapidly uh, progresses this person to have a secondary uh, investigation using FDG PET, DAT scans, or MRI to see what the underlying pathology is causing the cognitive decline. What if they're both negative? Well, that's interesting, and I think that maybe uh, this could be showing that it's not a neurogenitive disorder at play, and it could be something quite treatable or something you would manage in a very, very different way. Uh, and again, this both negative would uh, rapidly uh, push this person to a, a more in-depth more in investigation. And with that, thank you for listening, and I will pass over to Sharon. So we've been talking about early Alzheimer's disease. We've been talking about the MCI stage of Alzheimer's disease and the mild Alzheimer's disease dementia. The two uh, points in the Alzheimer's clinical continuum comprise the term early AD. And so what are our current treatment options? Well, lifestyle interventions, including uh, physical exercise, cognitive engagement, dietary pattern are important as our control of uh, vascular risk factors. Uh, but as far as pharmacologic intervention in the early AD uh, situation, we have cholinesterase inhibitors, which are indicated for all stages of AD dementia, uh, but not for the mild cognitive impairment stage. And memantine is actually not indicated for MCI or mild AD dementia, but is indicated for the moderate to severe stage of Alzheimer's disease dementia. As far as disease modifying approaches, uh, in the United States, as of last June, we have the first disease modifier, aducanumab, to come to the market and receive conditional approval based on amyloid lowering and uh, assumed uh, clinical benefit. Um, and this marks the beginning of disease modification in Alzheimer's disease and also the first approved pharmacologic treatment for mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. Despite the enthusiasm that I and others share about having a first disease modifier approved, at least in the US to date, um, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we still have no prevention for Alzheimer's disease. We have no cure. And of the disease-modifying agents that we have or that are likely to come to market, these will slow clinical progression, which is important, but they will not completely stabilize or reverse the clinical disease. So we still have a, a need for new therapies. As far as symptom treatments, um, we have nothing for the MCI stage and patients have to get worse in MCI before they are legitimately able by um, uh, current indications to access symptomatic therapy. Um, and with the disease-modifying uh, approach in the US with aducanumab, although again, exciting, not everybody will be eligible for aducanumab. And there are 
challenges in terms of uh, confirming underlying AD, so uh, cost and uh, um, availability uh, of, of biomarkers and some constraints that the healthcare system is dealing with to make sure that we have infusion centers and radiologists up to speed identifying uh, pre-baseline uh, and, and post-treatment, uh, during treatment, uh, RM monitoring. So, you know, it, it ushers in a, an era of greater complexity um, and, and certain individuals who have MCI and mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease because of comorbidities may not be good candidates. So, Fortunately, we have a robust clinical uh, drug development pipeline in Alzheimer's disease with multiple agents being assessed both for symptoms and for disease modification. And in disease modification, there are agents tackling a whole host of different uh, targets in Alzheimer's disease, be they amyloid, tau, neuroinflammation and other targets. And so this this is very promising that we will have uh, additional treatments forthcoming in the years to come. And here, this is from Jeff Cummings' um, uh, update from last year, 2021, on uh, Alzheimer's drug development. And and I'm sure that Dr. Cummings and his colleagues will publish again later this year an update. But you see in phase one, two, and three of drug development, we have multiple uh, drugs, each one color-coded. Most of the drugs are in phase two of development. About two-thirds of the drugs or more are uh, devoted to disease modification, and about a third or less, that's the uh, orange wedge, to symptom treatment. But both are represented in this pipeline. And if you look in phase three, you see that of the biologics, so the green wedge in the center, phase three, these are all colored red, and red stands for anti-amyloid approaches. So these are the ones that I'll focus on a little bit more because these are either, as in the case of aducanumab, approved in the US and considered investigational still in most of the rest of the world, and the others are, you know, in in late stage development, and uh, we are eagerly awaiting results. Everything in blue in this um, uh, diagram represents an anti-tau approach. Uh, everything in yellow, an immune or anti-inflammatory approach, and then there are other colors as well, just signifying how uh, varied the pipeline is. So turning to anti-A-beta therapies, um, aducanumab is the only anti-beta uh, monoclonal antibody to have read out so far in a phase three study with one positive and one negative trial. So the eMERGE trial was in early AD, as was the ENGAGE trial, and the eMERGE trial was positive, leading to uh, the conditional approval in the US. A couple of weeks later, the FDA granted breakthrough therapy designation to two other anti-A-beta monoclonal antibodies, the uh, canamab and denanumab. And in October 2021, the FDA granted similar breakthrough therapy designation to gantanarumab. So these are all very high visible uh, visibility programs that people are watching very carefully. Uh, in the case of lecanemab and denanemab, the phase two data showed amyloid lowering as well as evidence of clinical benefit at the phase two level. With gantanarumab, we had biomarker evidence of treatment benefit, but not yet clinical benefit. And notably, each of these three agents 
um, are fully recruited in their phase three early AD trials and will yield results either later this year or next year in the case of gantanarumab next year, sorry, in the case of denanumab next year. Uh, and all three agents are being assessed for um, their potential benefit in slowing progression from preclinical Alzheimer's disease to symptomatic uh, Alzheimer's MCI or mild dementia. So preclinical uh, secondary prevention trials are underway. If we look at these antibodies, they have a lot of similarities, but they have some differences. And notably, they have differences in terms of the species of amyloid that they preferentially target. Aducanumab and gantanarumab similarly target soluble and insoluble aggregated amyloid, whereas lecanumab has a high affinity preferentially for large soluble A-beta protofibrils. Denanumab is highly selective for plaque-bound amyloid, and solanezumab, on the other end of the spectrum, preferentially binds to A-beta monomers. And solanezumab, I should mention, is still in development in a preclinical um, trial called the A4 trial. Uh, it's a secondary prevention trial. So if we look at some of the, the, the evidence for these different programs, with aducanumab, looking at the phase three clinical results, we see the eMERGE high-dose arm showing on its primary outcome measure, the CDR sum of boxes, a 22% reduced decline uh, in this group. And on the secondary clinical outcomes, MMSE, ADISCOG-13, and ADCS, ADL, MCI, we see between an 18 and 40% slowing of disease in the early stage of Alzheimer's disease. We also see a dose and time dependent clearance of amyloid beta on PET scans, and you see this for both eMERGE and ENGAGE with uh, the gray line representing the placebo group without any amyloid lowering and the green and blue lines representing low dose and high dose aducanumab and the clearing of amyloid. We also see impact of aducanumab on downstream biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. And in the CSF, we see a lowering of phosphatau-181 and also of total tau. And in plasma, more recently, it has been presented from the eMERGE Engage data set that in the placebo-treated group, there was a rise of about 8 9% in plasma, PTAU-181, whereas there was a, a dose and time-dependent lowering of 13 to 16% of PTAU-181 without a canumab treatment. So the phase three program is completed and has read out. Um, ongoing aducanumab studies include the EMBARC study, which is a phase 3b redosing study. It's an open-label study for individuals who were previously in aducanumab trials. The treatment period is 24 months at the marketed dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram IV uh, monthly uh, with a six-month titration period to get to that dose. And we have a large data set. Um, and what we can see from the baseline characteristics, the study's ongoing, so we won't 
won't have the readout for a while as far as the, the long-term safety and efficacy results. But we can see from baseline characteristics, we're still dealing with an early AD population for the most part. Uh, subjects have uh, now gone to a, a percentage of about 30% have MCI stage uh, and 42% are at the um, mild AD stage. Um, and 23% have progressed to moderate stage and a very small percentage at severe AD stage. So it will give us a sense of how we do with aducanumab in a slightly more advanced cohort than was studied in the phase three program. And what we see from baseline characteristics is those individuals who had amyloid lowering in the feeder studies, namely Emerge and Engage, and also the PRIME study, that the amyloid lowering achieved was maintained during a 1.7 on average year gap between the end of the feeder study and the beginning of Embark. And so throughout this period where there was no treatment, treatment was suspended, we had maintenance of this marked lowering of amyloid. And in parallel, what we see is the treatment difference on the clinical endpoint here in this slide, you see the CDR sum of boxes. This treatment difference is at least numerically maintained during this gap in treatment, suggesting a disease-modifying approach rather than those who were treated and got benefit declining back to what the placebo group would show. Uh, we also have an Envision study, which is the name of the post-marketing FDA-mandated confirmatory study of aducanumab, confirmatory to show clinical benefit. And this will be initiated in May of this year, so we're excited to see that get underway. And there is an iCare AD US study, which is a real-world study following patients who are on aducanumab by prescription in the US um, and to see what the real world uh, safety, effectiveness, and, and, and challenges may be. If we turn to gantanarumab, here we have a fully enrolled phase three program that will read out this year almost 2,000 participants, graduate one and graduate two, identically designed protocols, each with close to 1,000 participants at the early AD stage with amyloid confirmation. And we have a subcutaneously administered drug, uh, gantanarumab, that takes nine months to get to the target dose. Um, and so it's a little bit slower titration, but it's given subcutaneously, monthly. And uh, the treatment period in the graduate program is two years. So it'll be exciting to see what the readout will be. And the primary endpoint from a clinical standpoint is the CDR sum of boxes. So again, it will allow for a nice comparison with what we have come to understand the aducanumab data to show. For lecanumab, we see from the phase two data that from a biomarker perspective, 81% of individuals by 18 months had complete clearance of amyloid on PET scans. So fairly dramatic impact on uh, amyloid lowering by lecanemab. And if you look at the far right, you see on the clinical outcome measure, the primary outcome measure for this phase two study, the ADCOMS, which is a composite measure of the ADIS-COG, CDR, and MMSC, we had 30% slowing of clinical decline. 
Now, similar to the aducanumab data, there was a gap in treatment. Here it was between the core study, the double-blind study, and the beginning of the open-label study for lecanemab, and it was a little bit longer on average, two years, a little bit longer than the aducanumab treatment gap. And we see a similar thing, that amyloid lowering is pretty much maintained, at least on PET, uh, measured by SUVR. And the benefit to the treated group on the adcoms from a clinical standpoint is also uh, maintained in, in parallel, um, uh, showing a differentiation still with the placebo-treated group. Clarity AD is the name of the phase three lecanemab study that is fully recruited, ongoing, will read out this year and will serve as the confirmatory study for the phase two program. The um, uh, primary outcome measure is the CDR sum of boxes for this study. Again, it'll provide a nice way to compare across compounds um, rather than having, you know, adcoms and CDR and different, different kinds of outcome measures. Um, the dose under test is 10 milligrams per kilogram biweekly intravenously. And lecanemab is also being tested in the AHEAD 345 study, which is a secondary prevention study in preclinical AD. And it's, um, it's a unique uh, paradigm where you have actually two studies within one with a common screening, screening path where cognitively normal individuals who may be at risk for Alzheimer's disease by virtue of family history, APOE4 status or age, um, but they are cognitively normal, they will undergo PET amyloid imaging. And if they have elevated amyloid as defined by greater than 40 centiloids, they will be randomized to lecanemab or placebo every, uh, every two weeks. However, if they have a subthreshold um, level of amyloid, 20 to 40 centiloids, then they will receive lecanemab or placebo every four weeks, at least for the initial half of the four-year trial. So again, trying to be more precise based on biomarker evidence of where someone might be in the uh, biomarker continuum in this case. If we turn to denanumab now, in early AD, we have a phase two study called Trailblazer ALS, which was designed a little differently than the others. Early AD patients who are amyloid positive, but the treatment with denanumab was such that um, the dose was either reduced or stopped in a double-blind manner, depending on the degree of amyloid clearance on PET scans at week 24 and 52. And also of interest, not only were these subjects amyloid positive, but they had an intermediate level of tau. So again, you see the field moving in its clinical trial design to greater and greater precision in defining a population that we either think will progress and show us results more easily or for whom the treatment may be the most um, efficacious. Now, if we look at this phase two readout, which has been published, we see on the primary outcome measure, the IDRESS, which is a different composite scale than the ADCOMS here. It's a, an addition of the uh, score on uh, an instrumental ADL scale and the ADS-COG. 
we see 32% slowing. So with, with flucanumab, we saw 30% slowing in early AD. With uh, the aducanumab study, 22% on the CDR summer boxes. So we're sort of in that range now. And on your far right, you see the amyloid lowering um, with 40% of individuals having complete clearance of amyloid on denanumab by 24 weeks. Trailblazer 2 is actually the phase three study, fully recruited. It includes not just the intermediate tau subjects, but also um, high tau uh, individuals, all of them amyloid positive, to get a look at whether uh, this drug, this treatment approach might be uh, beneficial in people who have a high burden of tau. And um, the sample size in this study is anticipated to be about uh, 1,500 patients. And the primary endpoint will no longer be the IDRAS, it will be the CDR sum of boxes, and the study will read out next year. Denanumab is also being tested in preclinical AD, and this is a very novel trial design. It's event-driven, so number of subjects that progress to, from preclinical normal cognition uh, to MCI or mild dementia out of over 3,000 patients who are expected to be enrolled. Um, and um, for um, inclusion in the study, um, a phosphotau uh, plasma level of 217 will be used uh, to determine that one is on the Alzheimer's continuum as opposed to using a PET scan or CSF to get confirmation of Alzheimer's disease uh, being at play. So again, plasma uh, levels now in this clinical trial design and a very decentralized trial, allowing patients to be treated in their own geography, reducing the resource burden to sites, or so is the goal, uh, and uh, hopefully to include uh, underrepresented individuals who may not otherwise have access to um, clinical trial centers. So the plan is to fully recruit this uh, trial by the end of the year, and the study will run three to four years approximately. And finally, with denanumab, I want to mention that we see the first ever head-to-head uh, -head comparison of two anti-A beta monoclonal antibodies, and this is comparing denanumab uh, and aducanumab. Um, at their usually uh, given uh, um, dose for aducanumab, the marketed schedule, and denanumab, uh, the, the, the dosing schedule that's been used in its clinical trial development. And here, what the, the goal is, is to compare the timing and the extent of amyloid lowering. Uh, to have a readout at six months, one year and 18 months and to see whether one drug is superior to the other in terms of extent and timing of amyloid lowering. So if we turn to the main side effect with anti-A-beta monoclonal antibodies, this is ARIA. And ARIA refers to an, uh, an MRI finding. It can be described as ARIA-E, vasogenic edema, or ARIA-H, which comes in two types, microbleeds or superficial siderosis. And we've learned a lot from um, all of the uh, anti-A-beta monoclonal antibody programs about ARIA, starting uh, way back with bapinezumab, and our learning has increased since then. And one thing we can say is that the risk of ARIA has increased with the dose of the uh, compound and also with the patient's APOE4 carrier status. 
and that risk of aria can also be mitigated by um, selecting the, the patients who are at lower risk by titrating the dose, uh, by monitoring with MRI during dosing, and adjusting the dosing as needed based on uh, um, aria findings. Uh, aria is usually asymptomatic and it is usually mild to moderate radiologically and resolves spontaneously. When it is symptomatic, symptoms are generally mild. They can be moderate. Severe symptoms are rare, uh, but they do occur. And so we have to monitor for them. Uh, the rates of ARIA are different uh, as they have been reported in the different clinical trial programs. And we will learn more as um, uh, more phase three programs read out. The largest database for ARIA comes from aducanumab now, over 3,000 patients. Uh, and the, the overall rate of ARIA-E is 35%. And between APOE for non-carriers and carriers, it ranges from 20 to 43%. You can see that it's over twice uh, the, the rate of ARIA in APOE4 carriers. But 76% of patients with ARIA are asymptomatic. With the lecanemab phase two program, the rate of ARIA is quoted at 9.9%, so quite a bit less. We haven't seen the phase three results yet. They will be forthcoming. With denanumab, we get an ARIA E rate of around 27%. And with gantanerumab, so far, about 30%. Interestingly, solanezumab, uh, which I mentioned, uh, does not uh, um, target uh, fibrillar or aggregated amyloid, is not associated with ARIA. So managing ARIA, now that in the US we have aducanumab marketed, um, but even within clinical trials, we need protocols for how to manage ARIA. And it really depends on three things. The radiologic type of aria, the radiologic severity, and the presence or absence of symptoms. So in general, when aria is radiographically mild and it is asymptomatic, dosing continues. However, MRI monitoring is required usually on a monthly basis if we're talking about you know, the, the uh, recommendations coming forth from the aducanumab program, monthly MRI to make sure that ARIA is resolving or stabilizing and not converting to uh, to more severe radiographic picture. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, when someone has severe symptoms or severe ARIA age, dosing would be permanently discontinued. And in the middle, we have some permutations and combinations where people even with severe ARIA-E if they've been asymptomatic, we would hold the dose, they would undergo monitoring as their um, ARIA resolves, they can resume dosing. And just to make sure that I don't uh, give the impression that it's all about anti-A-beta monoclonal antibodies, there are many other very interesting anti-A-beta approaches uh, and a couple in phase three development I'll just so briefly touch on, but one is ALZ801, which is a small molecule that inhibits formation of oligomeric amyloid, which is the species of amyloid that some would say is the most toxic. And the phase three program is selectively enrolling subjects who are APOE4 homozygotes. So again, this tendency in our field now in research to be ever more specific about the patient population, the biomarker status, um, and really working towards precision medicine. 
Sumophyllum is a very interesting small molecule that restores shape and function of a scaffolding protein, uh, filament A, which is altered in Alzheimer's disease and restoring its shape allows less toxicity from amyloid and less hyperphosphorylation of tau. So very interesting as well. And, and other approaches that we can't dwell on today. And now, just to briefly touch on anti-tau therapies, I'm sorry for all of these slides, but it is an exciting time in Alzheimer's disease, and I don't want to not give you a little, little uh, taste of this. So um, we've learned a lot about um, N-terminus targeting monoclonal antibodies targeting tau uh, in phase two programs in early AD. Just uh, at the end of last year at CTAD, we saw that gosuranumab and telavonumab, uh, which were anti-tau antibodies, um, getting an extracellular tau, trying to stop seeding from one cell to another, uh, did not show benefit, and these have dropped out of the pipeline. And the 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 um, notable remaining uh, N-terminus uh, tau monoclonal antibody is semirinumab, and it is ongoing in the mild to moderate AD uh, drug development, having met one of its two co-primaries. So we'll see what happens with that. But tau as a target is too important uh, to ignore, and um, E. 2814 is a different kind of anti-tau monoclonal antibody in that its target is the mid-domain, and that may be more helpful in stopping seeding of tau from one uh, neuron to another. And this is the anti-tau monoclonal antibody that's been selected for the DIAN trial unit uh, platform study uh, that I'll mention in another couple of slides. Other approaches include a first antisense oligonucleotide to stop the mRNA translation into tau protein. That is exciting and is poised to begin very soon in phase two. And also a vaccine against tau, which in its phase two study showed very high immunogenicity, um, very high levels of uh, being able to trigger antibody uh, development uh, in the treated patient against tau. So one way to try and speed up drug development, which has been slow in Alzheimer's disease, and now there are a lot of compounds to test, is to try to have platform designs. And I'll show you a couple. So here, the Alzheimer's Consortium, uh, sorry, Clinical Trial Consortium, ACTC, has a program where both anti-amyloid and anti-tau drugs, uh, more than one of each, will be tested in different arms of a study using a shared placebo group. And this will save a lot of human resource and, and, and time having this kind of a platform design. Um, the Diane network, uh, so for autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, has a similar sort of platform design that's called the Tau Next Generation trial. And here, both anti-tau and anti-amyloid drugs will be tried in individuals who have autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. And there will be a difference um, made on the basis of whether someone's in the pre-symptomatic stage of disease or the symptomatic stage in terms of whether they start with an anti-tau antibody for a period of time and then add an anti-amyloid or the other way around. So these are very interesting studies pushing us back to uh, very early stages, pre-symptomatic stages, and autosomal dominant disease uh, that um, will run its course with a host of different uh, compounds being tested under the same platform. 
And finally, finally, I just want to whet your appetite that there are multiple approaches targeting the immune system. They all differ quite a bit one to another. GV971 is a purified plant extract that alters the microbiome in the gut to reduce brain inflammation. And this drug has already been approved in China a couple of years ago uh, due to the phase three China results showing symptomatic benefit in mild to moderate AD. It's under study in a global trial uh, currently to reproduce that symptomatic benefit, but also biomarkers have been added to see if this may actually be a disease modifying compound as well. So wouldn't that be great to have symptom treatment as well as disease modification in a, in a single compound. With Electors AL002, we have a monoclonal antibody that targets the TREM2 receptors on microglia to enhance microglial clearance of amyloid. And this is currently ongoing in phase two development. XPRO1995 is an inhibitor of soluble tumor necrosis factor to reduce neuroinflammation, and it is embarking on phase two in early AD, uh, and not just those with early AD, but those with biomarkers of inflammation. So that's also an interesting uh, way to characterize your population. And finally, mesitinib is an oral tyrannase kinase inhibitor that interferes with mast cell function, and it is uh, going into phase three study in mild to moderate AD shortly. So Harold, Harold, we don't want to forget about him. So he's our gentleman who we've decided has uh, mild cognitive impairment, and uh, his MRI showed a cortical infarct of 1.5 centimeters. He's had a remote MI 15 years ago. Um, and his CSF and PET scan, PET amyloid scan results show that he's on the Alzheimer's continuum. So what can we do for him? Well, we would, we would recommend that he stop his diphenhydramine because we don't need any anticholinergic effect there. Um, we would discuss medication options. Um, but he's at the MCI stage, so cholinesterase inhibitors don't have a formal indication there. Memantine certainly doesn't. Um, if he's in the U.S., aducanumab would be a consideration. And if he's not in the U.S., then maybe in the, you know an aducanumab trial or, or another anti-A-beta uh, monoclonal trial or an anti-tau trial, so uh, clinical trial options. Um, and, um, and, and non-pharmacologic uh, management, which would include counseling, education, uh, planning for the future. And so I'll just conclude by saying that this is a hopeful time in Alzheimer's therapeutics. I hope you share that um, excitement with us that although we have a lot to learn uh, and we still need new and better therapies and probably combination therapies, we have a first disease modifier, at least in the USA, and uh, we have guidelines for appropriate use that um, are rolling out to the real world setting and will continue to evolve. Um, we have several other anti-amyloid antibodies expected to be approved in just the next few years. Combination therapy trials and head-to-head -head trials have begun. And the drug development pipeline is diverse with emphasis both on disease modification as well as symptom treatment, and we do need both. And there is an emphasis on going early. We know we need to treat this disease early before there's too much neurodegeneration. And an emphasis on making sure we have a biologic um, gauge of, of how we're doing in treatment, both uh, who we're enrolling or prescribing to and being able to monitor biologically the treatment effect. 
So I'll close on that note and I'll stop sharing my, my slides. Thank you so much. Thank you. I will be asking our esteemed faculty to comment and give their thoughts in dissecting uh, this um, six-year-old right-handed black Latina female presenting with 18 years of education and a master's degree in English, who reports having memory complaints for the past six months, such as having trouble finding words and misplacing objects approximately two, three times a week, so pretty regularly. She also reports mild anxiety, has stopped doing some activities she used to enjoy because she's no longer interested. Medical and family history, she has hypertension, well-controlled on lisinopril, type 2 diabetes, well-controlled on metformin, no family history of dementia, mother died of stroke at age 72, father died of lung cancer at age 75, and the spouse reports that there is gradually increasing difficulty remembering conversations or events over the past two years. So that's our timeline. Um, but this has gotten noticeably worse in the past three months. She's writing down information more than before and seems to be more withdrawn. What are you concerned about? So let's get started with Dr. Milky. Um. Well, well, I think that the highlights are, are the memory complaints, not only by the patient, but really also by the caregiver. And um, the being more withdrawn and, and uh, kind of socially isolating really go hand in hand and probably are contributed somewhat to her awareness of the memory issues as well. She, she doesn't have a family history, but there are clear memory changes. Correct. And... Dr. Cohen or Dr. Ashton, anything to add here? No, I, I totally agree that it is concerning that this individual and her um, uh, spouse notice that she has changed, uh, both with respect to memory, word finding, and some associated anxiety. So these are very characteristic features of early AD, even though we don't have enough yet to say that AD is underlying this, but that's that's what I would be suspicious about. And when you tell me about her past medical history, you know, her vascular risk factors are well controlled and there isn't anything else obvious going on in her medical history to suggest another uh, non-AD cause. All right, let's go to the slides back again. And so here is what was done in terms of cognitive and functional assessment. Uh, MOCA was done, score is 26 out of 30, she missed 3 out of 5, a delayed recall, and made an error on arithmetic. Uh, in terms of ADLs, um, she is uh, independent for bills, driving, taking her own meds, and cooking, but she has missed two bills, very unusual for her, um, and now is setting up auto pay. And she's also setting multiple alarms on her phone to remember appointments. Neuropsychological testing was done, a more in-depth uh, assessment of cognitive skills. There is prominent amnestic deficits across multiple memory tests, which are listed in parentheses, mild relative weakness in naming, which is Boston Naming Test, and category fluency animals relative to letter fluency, and other than that, um, the rest was fine. So she didn't have any deficiencies in visual spatial skills or executive skills. There was mild depression and anxiety. 
and additional tests, including blood work and MRI, ruled out potential causes for memory impairment. And then we recommend more testing, um, which uh, would be after a benign MRI or an MRI revealing some atrophy, uh, would be a biomarker test. So a CSF test or a, a amyloid PET, and this happens to be this lady's amyloid PET, which shows uh, quite intense binding, not only in the white matter tracts, but also spreading out to the cortex, which is indicative of moderate to frequent amyloid plaques, and it's a positive scan for amyloid pathology. So she could be amnestic mild cognitive impairment single domain, likely because of Alzheimer's disease. Arguably, she has a second domain, which is language. But um, anyhow, she, she is on the borderline, just about there, uh, where uh, she is um, uh, going to cross to mild AD later. So what are your next steps? Who would like to take that? Dr. Cohen, as our resident sure. physician? Sure, I'm happy to jump in. So now we have biomarker confirmation of uh, MCI, late MCI, let's say, due to underlying Alzheimer's disease. And so what are the treatment options? Well, diagnostic disclosure, non-pharmacologic interventions. She's got vascular risk factors well controlled, but still, you know, how much is she exercising? What's her dietary pattern? Things like that. Planning for the future, discussing the disease course, making sure things are in place uh, and according to her wishes. But then from a pharmacologic standpoint, as we discussed with Harold, we don't have... Um, uh, approval of cholinesterase inhibitors or other symptomatic treatments for the MCI stage. You could say, oh, she's almost at the AD dementia stage. Maybe you try a cholinesterase inhibitor. There's a lot of physician discretion there. Um, she might be an excellent candidate for aducanumab if she lives in the U.S. Uh, or for a, um, uh, an early AD uh, clinical trial um, in the U.S. or elsewhere. So that would be my approach and ideally follow her within a trial if she's not um, taking aducanumab by prescription. Yeah, I completely agree with that statement. Now, we didn't get there, uh, but they're appropriate to use recommendations published for aducanumab, which would, uh, version two is going to come out in JPAD um, within a matter of weeks, actually. And I advise all the clinicians to familiarize themselves because that is uh, uh, the advice from the experts of how we need to select patients for aducanumab therapy. It's not as prescriptive as the clinical trial because uh, clinical trials are, exclude far more than uh, what is logistic and logical and meaningful. So but there is a lot to worry about and counsel the patients before starting um, this new accelerated approval medication. So this is what we did. Uh, she was informed of her diagnosis, counseled on likely progression in the future, recommended to do future planning and meet with an elderly lawyer, put her affairs in order, submit disability paperwork. Um, she was referred to therapy support groups and social work and the Alzheimer's Association, of course. Um, um, community resources were uh, recommended for at home and community services were also listed for her. Uh, she got medications for symptom management. Um, and of course, that discussion about aducanumab, should she be in the States? And uh, once the medication is covered by insurance, needs to take place. And then she would need to be screened even further for whether she would 
qualify. She was counseled on importance of lifestyle factors uh, to build up brain reserve, uh, Mediterranean diet, physical exercise, social engagement, and cognitive engagement, as well as maintaining stable overall health and managing chronic health conditions, uh, diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And patient was also interested in obtaining information about clinical trials. All right, so let's move to that last case. So here we have Alexandra. Sorry, it's wordy slides, uh, courtesy of Joel Salinas. Um, 58-year-old left-handed woman who is a lawyer. Her work is stressful, fast-paced, and demanding. But she's saying, I'm not as sharp as I used to be. There have been subtle changes in the last four or five years, even more noticeable during the pandemic. There is increased forgetfulness, occasionally forgetting an appointment or the name of someone she recently met, difficulty remembering the correct word despite her usually extensive vocabulary. Throughout the pandemic, she has felt lonely, didn't we all, and unusually irritable with small nuisances. Uh, She does deny changes in behavior, mood, or personality. Her changes are not interfering with work. She denied trouble navigating familiar places, performing chores or tasks, having trouble with speech or language, calculations, attention, organization, and planning skills. She is relying slightly more on notes and calendar apps. She's fully independent in her basic and instrumental ADLs, including operating appliances, driving a car, taking her meds, uh, and she's anxious. Well, the reason for her anxiety is her family history. Um, As you can see in the bottom here, she is concerned about her risk because her mom died of Alzheimer's disease at 87 with cognitive symptoms starting at 78. She has typical comorbidities, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes. She denies having any other symptoms that can suggest uh, Parkinsonian disorders or normal pressure hydrocephalus in terms of urinary incontinence, no history of TBI. Some hearing difficulty has emerged recently. Her spouse has mentioned that she snores, but it's not known to have apneic pauses. And she is not acting out during sleep, but has some vivid dreams uh, recently during the pandemic. Um, Otherwise, she is doing well. Um, Physical examination, stable vital signs, uh, slightly overweight, well, overweight, um, and normal physical and neurological examinations. And a cognitive assessment is reassuring. MOCA is 29 out of 30 with one word missed on delayed recall spontaneously. And she was able to get that fifth word with category clues. So um, low scores on assessment of depressive symptoms and anxiety, despite her uh, concerns. And so the clinical impression in this case is actually subjective cognitive decline. So um, if my colleagues agree with me, how, um, Dr. Cohen, would you work her further up So in our clinic, we would, and I agree, the syndrome is subjective cognitive decline. And then the next step is, what is that due to? She has memory symptoms. She has some word-finding symptoms. And it's not obvious from her history that, uh, you know, her blood pressure is a little bit elevated. There's no history of stroke. She's a little bit overweight. She needs to be worked up. There's some reason for her having um, some cognitive symptoms, even though we're delighted that on a MOCA, at least, she's cognitively normal. 
the fact that her mother had late life Alzheimer's disease doubles this person's risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. She's, she's younger than the age at which her mom developed symptoms. Uh, but nevertheless, one thing that could be ruled out is preclinical Alzheimer's disease. And probably the best way to do that is by screening for a prevention study. Even before we get to that, um, lifestyle strategies, getting that blood pressure, uh, you know, uh, more normalized. Her systolic was 148. In somebody with cognitive complaints, we don't like that. You know, can we get her weight down? Uh, what can we do to optimize her general health? That's all correct. So you see her lab work was normal. Um, her cholesterol could be improved. Other than that, looks good. Here's her MRI, memory protocol and looks quite normal on all slices, trust me. You just see one snapshot, but uh, quite um, well-looking brain and hippocampal formations that are, do not look atrophic. Um, and on T2-star GRE, uh, there was no evidence of microhemorrhages. Now, additional testing. Would you do genetic testing? I do in my clinic offer APOE genotyping. I explain that this is not diagnostic of Alzheimer's. It tells us a little bit more about the risk category one might be in. And I explain a little bit about the APOE genotypes and what they can tell us and what they can't tell us. Um, and, and then I leave it to the person. And my experience is that many people are very interested in learning their APOE genotype. And we do this through a cheek swab in our clinic. Uh, but in Canada, if we did buy a blood test, the cost would be covered as well. So. It's accessible and um, we do our own genetic counseling regarding the results. But as far as um, gene mutation testing, I would not. There isn't the right clinical scenario. The family history is one individual and one first degree relative with late life Alzheimer's. That's a pretty common scenario. Doesn't strongly suggest autosomal dominant Alzheimer's gene mutation. So neuropsychological evaluation could serve a good purpose, a baseline for this lady that is worried well. Um, and then in a year's time, they could be invited to come back and get retested. If she's interested in preclinical trials, absolutely, she would get even amyloid imaging with that. So a lot more information will be available to her um, under the context of a clinical trial, if that's what she desires to do. Uh, an MRI of the brain was done. No further imaging workup is necessary. CSF testing not at this point, and no need from amyloid and tau pet imaging. All of that information is not going to change our management. We do not have anything to prescribe this lady just yet. I really want to get to your questions, and some of the ones that um, were already addressed. I just want to add one point about how the the monoclonal antibodies currently in development. Um, the table of five that Dr. Cohen listed are different in terms of mechanism. Um, and I completely agree. There are differences about the type of amyloid they bind. Some bind the plaques, other soluble species, monomers, um, protofibrils, oligomers. That is absolutely true. Um, however, um, from a clinical perspective, or rather biomarker perspective, for now, only donanumab has been shown to have some effect on tau burden uh, over time uh, via tau imaging. So in the frontal and temporal lobes, there was uh, less deposit over time. So uh, of course, the other drugs are in major clinical trials that include uh, tau imaging. So we will stay tuned to see if that is also present and for those as well. Um, now, um, 
I would start with Dr. Milky and ask her uh, whether she can comment if depression, sleep disorders, and benzodiazepines are risks for dementia. Oh, I have a microphone. Um, it, yes, if you look at the epidemiological uh, cohort studies, uh, depression in, in mid and, and late life, uh, sleep disorders and benzodiazepines have been associated with an increased risk of myocognitive impairment and dementia. That's true. I would agree. Um, anybody from Dr. Ashton, Dr. Cohen, anything to add? You know, it's very interesting to try and ferret out what is a risk versus what is a very, very early symptom of the disease. And, um, you know, uh, chronic high-level anxiety or, or stress, you know, may injure the hippocampus and make you more prone to Alzheimer's disease. But um, when you have Alzheimer's disease, even when it's very mild, even in the preclinical stage when people have subjective cognitive decline, that can be a stressful situation, feeling you're not quite at your best. And you start complaining that you don't feel, you know, as happy as you did before. And people look at you and say, well, you know, you're normal. We don't find anything. So it's just, I, I always feel it's so important not to be dismissive or just go for low-hanging fruit and say, oh, this is someone who's anxious or depressed when someone's complaining of uh, cognitive problems because the two can coexist for different reasons. And, and, and yes, anybody with depression and anxiety you know, even if they don't have cognitive problems, should be treated, you know, for, for their mood symptoms. Thank you. Now a question for Dr. Ashton. How soon before plasma biomarkers are well validated and available in clinic? Can you speculate? Uh, yeah, I can speculate for sure. And uh, I think, well, we, we know that the FDI are looking at some of these versions of these biomarkers in accelerated approval. Um, in Sweden, we can approve tests for clinical chemistry use. So not diagnostic purpose, but we can uh, give information to a clinician on a, on a biological level. We've done this for neurofilament light, and we've been using it in clinic for over two years now. Uh, and I think that we've learned a lot about this biomarker from being able to look at it in real-world scenario. For instance, what we didn't know beforehand is that neurofilament light changes with uh, kidney disease and yep. things like that, which we didn't know in research settings because these individuals probably would have been excluded uh, in, in some way or another. Um, so I think we are extremely close to some assays being approved for clinical chemistry tests, especially in, in Sweden. Uh, I think we show um, really good confidence in these biomarkers knowing that you know therapeutic trials are, are starting to use them as outcome measures or even recruitment trials that shows that we are very very confident in their in their performance but using it in patient data and being able to collect this will give us more information about how this biomarker uh, may have some uh, changes in terms of sort of peripheral disorders which we don't know about yet the field has gone so quickly there's some questions we still need to answer Wonderful. Um, and a question to everyone on the panel, and it's interesting because um, me and Dr. Milk here from the U.S., but uh, of course our Canadian and Swedish colleagues might have an opinion as well. How do you feel about the Center for Medicare Services decision to only cover aducanumab in the context of a clinical trial? 
Um, that was a lot of a lot of controversy came out of the accelerated approval of Educatomap now over the Medicare decision. So I wonder how uh, people outside of U.S. feel, and you know, us within the U.S. I guess too. Well, I can jump in and say yes, even though I am in Canada, I'm very concerned about this ruling. It is, in my mind, uh, counter to what the intention of accelerated approval means, trying to get uh, promising drugs in the hands of patients who have serious disease uh, sooner than would otherwise be possible. And now we've added a layer of barrier by, um, uh, you know, sort of making uh, the cost unmanageable. And we know for people to be involved in clinical trials, that's going to be a bit of a two-tier system because there'll be inclusion ex uh, and exclusion criteria. And many uh, individuals, including the diversity that we hope to, uh, you know, uh, um, represent will not have access. So it's a surprising step backwards in, in my mind. And I, and I am concerned about it, even though, you know, our, our regulators and payers in Canada may feel differently than in the US. So let's go to Europe, Sweden. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as, as you may know, so the EMA decided not to approve this uh, yes. for, for use. Um, uh, and I think the, one of the basis is that we have a different healthcare system set up and you know, the, there are different considerations. In fact, I, I agree, I was, I mean, it's, it's a concern when you put up extra barriers of something that could potentially be useful uh, and it's you know, not accessible. Uh, to all, so um, I don't really have much other comments th than that, um, and I think th the Europe will have a similar problem coming up uh, in the next few years, whether they go down a similar route or how they deal with the financial situation of, of, of these uh, therapeutic trials. And Dr. Milkin? Um, yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, I, I do think there are still questions about efficacy. So in that sense, a, a clinical trial would be beneficial. Um, but I do very much worry with, with the other two speakers um, about the diversity aspect and that you're, you're still going to, with a clinical trial, if it's the same requirements, you're going to end up ruling out a, a lot of other people that may be eligible for the disease down the road. And if you don't have a, a broad spectrum, then you don't know if it's going to work on on everybody. And there's also a fairness or equity aspect, too, of just certain people that are going to be able to get the medication. So I think the, the way it, wasn't, it was rolled out wasn't necessarily the best way. But I, I do think that more research is needed. Yeah, yeah, no argument there. But is this the right way to roll out an FDA-approved medication? Obviously, there is a taxpayer cost for somebody being in the placebo group because there would be yeah. people on active treatment and people on placebo. Is that even ethical for an FDA-approved drug? There is so much we need to probably unfold. Um, and also, yeah, rural access, impossible. Um, access to uh, those populations that don't normally participate in clinical trials. And, and you know, there is a little bit of coercive element. Like, yeah, you can get potentially the medication if you participate in a trial. So lots of controversies. Um, and the final decision is due in April. So there is just the preliminary decision that was shared in January. So we're tuned for that. 
All right. So let's see whether they were. So what are uh, Dr. Cohen's thoughts on mechanism? No. So uh, on opportunities for combination therapies in the future? I think that we really need this. We know that the underlying pathobiology of Alzheimer's disease is complex. And, uh, you know, there, there is toxicity from amyloid, there is uh, hyperphosphorylated tau, there's synaptic injury, there's neuroinflammation, and there are probably other problems with, uh, you know, mitochondrial function and, and cell energy. And so just the way with, um, you know, so many diseases, whether it's a, a cancer chemotherapy cocktail or even treating hypertension or diabetes where we usually have more than one drug that targets the disease in more than one way and it may be at certain stages of the disease certain drugs are needed and at later stages you add on or uh, switch to different drugs this has got to be what the field will look like in alzheimer's treatment down the road so i'm really pleased that combination therapy trials have started and I think the opportunity is exciting because there are many compounds worthy of testing in combination. Uh, so we look forward to what, what uh, those trials will show us. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And I really hope that you found this program to be um, um, interactive and engaging and also educational. Um, we try to uh, address uh, the very important topics of the biomarker-confirmed diagnosis of MCI because of AD and mild Alzheimer's dementia, which is critical nowadays and will be critical with uh, disease-modifying agents becoming available for optimizing patient care and enabling the appropriate use of these agents. Um, there have been significant advice, uh, advances in blood biomarkers. It's such an exciting development. And finally, the drug development pipeline is also another tremendously uh, adventurous sort of palette of trials nowadays and also quite promising. And with that, I'm going to thank our faculty, thank the virtual audience, uh, and of course, everybody who's still here. Go ahead and enjoy Barcelona. Thanks so much. This activity is certified by Purdue University College of Pharmacy. This accredited activity has been developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JYU860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.